This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, we're bringing back Matt Dufresne, who's the vice president of Blue Zones, and that's a great project, as you know, and it's also part of the North Texas Healthy Communities. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steve. I'm so glad to be back, and hello to all the listeners out there. You know, Matt, I thought today we would narrow the scope of Blue Zones a little bit, and we'll talk about what children are going through and adults, but especially children when it relates to food insecurity. But to set the stage, can you define what is really meant by food insecurity? Yeah, you bet, Steve. And, you know, it, it is a term that probably everyone has heard at some point in time. But while it's a, it's a simple and yet a complex answer, um, it's simple in that it just simply means, um, you know, people have a lack of access at some point in time um, to enough food to live an active, healthy life. Um, but it's complex in that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and we certainly, I know, will break that down over the, the next few minutes. Um, you know, I, just to kind of give also context to that, people may not realize how pervasive that it is in our community. One in eight Texans experience food insecurity. And so what that means for our region, the four main co- counties here in North Texas is 850,000 people are food insecurity in North Texas. So that's a pretty large number. Most people probably don't have that context. When you say 850,000 people just here in North Texas, you know, you stop and think of a stadium that maybe holds 80 to 100,000 people. You're talking more than eight times the size of a normal athletic stadium, correct? That's right. And, and again, um, you know, we, we hear these phrases tossed around, but we, we oftentimes don't really stop and think of the impact. And what we also don't realize is that part of those people packed into these stadiums, as you so eloquently described, may be our neighbors, may be uh, people that we know. And, and the fact is, again, and with one in eight Texans, we probably do know people um, in, our, in our neighborhoods and our communities that are suffering. And what we also know is that um, children and uh, people of color are at a much higher rate of likelihood of being food insecure. And that also includes seniors in our community. So again, when you stop and think about the magnitude, um, that's, that's really important to consider. But then when you think about the fact that we probably all know people that are suffering with food insecurity, that really makes it you know, much more personal and brings it home as it should. You know, man, I was just thinking it's got to be terrible to have food insecurity and, and in many cases not really knowing where your next meal's coming from. What impact does that have on children? You know, kids who don't get enough to eat, especially in those first three years, we've heard about how important those first three years are for a kid's development, and that's certainly true as well with food insecurity. But kids who don't get enough eat during those first three years begin life with a serious disadvantage. Just to give some context to that, children who are hungry are more likely to be hospitalized 
They face higher risks of health conditions like anemia and asthma, which are very preventable in in often cases. Um, And as they grow up, kids who miss meals um, are more likely to have problems in schools and other social situations. And obviously, we know how important education is. Those same kids who are face hunger have lower comprehension in schools, lower math scores. They're more likely to repeat grades in elementary school. And of course, there's associated um, other developmental delays like language and motor skills. So the challenges and the problems can be pervasive, all linked back to this one issue, which is childhood hunger. And it it certainly can have a significant impact, not only in the child at the end of those formative years, but throughout their lifetime. You know, Matt, you bring up such good points. And I know one of the places that helps children have food is at school. But, you know, you have holidays, you have breaks like spring break from school. How does that exacerbate the problem of food insecurity? You bring up such a great point. And the the good news is that there are a lot of programs. Arguably, there needs to be more. But there are a lot of programs, both locally and from the federal and, and state government, that help to provide food for kids. And as you mentioned, especially in school. So that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that, as you pointed out, when they're not in school, then the reality just hits home yet again. There's programs like the backpack program, there's after school food, there's school pantries like ours and others, summer food programs. But as you mentioned, when school is out, that support just simply isn't available. So the reality, and that's what I think it's so important to talk about, is the reality for a lot of kids when they're not in school, for whatever the reason is, it is that they go hungry without these resources that they have otherwise available while they're in school. You know, you you bring up such good points. And, you know, Matt, I don't think people realize many of our universities have food banks just to help their students. Can you elaborate on that? You know, Steve, we hear the same thing. And the fact is, is like I mentioned previously, food insecurity stretches across all of our population. And you're exactly right that many students, I mean, obviously we know that they're living on a limited budget. We all probably remember when we were college students how tight things are um, when you're trying to live paycheck to paycheck. Anyone in our community that is struggling to make ends meet is susceptible to food insecurity. And so certainly college students are among those groups, uh, you know, seniors um, that are on a fixed income, same, same thing. So again, I think that's why it's so important for people to understand that this is a pervasive issue in our community. It can touch any one of us, but certain people are certainly even more vulnerable and especially anyone living on a fixed income, including students and seniors are just much more at risk of becoming food insecure at some point in their life. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she decided to work at one of those places that's so great that have the backpack program that you talked about. And she was just totally unaware of how bad the food insecurity was. And she told me the very first day she worked, there was a little fella that kept saying, hey, I am going to get my backpack before I go home, right? I am going to get my backpack. And he kept asking. And finally, she said yes, and she brought the backpack to him. And he said, you don't understand. 
I take half of this home for my little brother. And that just made her so aware of how acute the problem is. And Matt, I'm sure you have stories similar to that. You know, um, that's such a, such a true um, story. And again, I think this provides context to our community to understand um, not just the need, but how meaningful it is when um, those services are provided. Well, you talk about a wake-up call or an awareness. What a touching story from Steve there also. We're talking with Matt Dufresne, the Vice President of the Blue Zones Project, North Texas Healthy Communities. Matt's advice on what you can do if you would like to become involved to help with this issue in North Texas. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking about a very important issue here for a few minutes in North Texas. It's called food insecurity, but basically it means people who don't have enough money or resources simply to get food. It's not just in our communities, it's in our schools and even colleges, as we talked about in the last segment. Our guest is Matt Dufresne. He's the vice president of the Blue Zones Project. Steve? Let's shift gears a little bit. North Texas Healthy Communities, the Blue Zone Project, how are you addressing food insecurity issue? Well, and of course, you've already mentioned we do our work under Blue Zones Project and North Texas Healthy Communities, but I want to make sure that all the listeners understand that we're part of Texas Health and the things that we do and that we'll talk about are just part of the greater work that we're, that Texas Health is doing across the community to improve the lives of the people in the communities that we serve. I think it's important to note also that we really try to take a holistic view at the entire food system. You know, I think probably everyone has heard stats that, you know, a third of the food that's grown in the U.S. goes uneaten, and that's true. So it's not just a matter of providing food, but we really have to take a holistic view at the entire food system to think about ways that we can solve this long-term. So I think our approach is we want to provide some immediate resources to the community. That That's obviously goes without saying, but we want to make sure we're meeting some needs. But we also really want to be an advocate and a catalyst for really long-term transformational changes around the entire food system because there is enough food to go around But we do want to make sure that we're looking at that and thinking long-term about how we can solve those problems. Matt, this is Thomas. There's a pressing question here. We've talked to a lot of physicians on the show, and one of the themes that comes up, and I don't want to be critical here, but it is what it is. They want to keep their patients healthy, but they say how unhealthy these many places with drive-thrus are. That's right. Well, school food, pretty much the same boat. That's right. What do we do about that? So I think in this conversation, it's also really important to point out the, the distinction between having food, which we certainly don't want anyone to go, to go hungry, and having access to healthy food. And there, there's a wide gap, even as we talk about that in this, uh, through this lens of food insecurity. What we know is, um, especially 
in in many of our communities, there is not access to healthy food. There's a lot of access to junk food, to food that will exacerbate health issues. But um, one of the other things that we really have to struggle with as a community is making sure that every person in our community has access to affordable, locally um, accessed produce and healthy food at that neighborhood level. Um, And that's part of our focus is not just about how we address food insecurity in general, but it's about how we make healthy food available to everyone, no matter where they live in North Texas. And that's something that it's going to take all of us to really address as well. What would move the needle on that? Well, I think part of that is we haven't reached the the stage where we are today overnight. You know, like most large challenges, it's been a pervasive issue for years. And it's going to take a concentrated effort by all of us to look at this issue across sectors. So nonprofits, hospitals can't do this alone, but it's really going to take all of us looking at this at the holistic level, looking at it at the system level, thinking about how we address the gaps that may be logistics focus, it may be delivery, it may be um, affordability, but we really have to begin looking at this at the highest level across all the sectors that come into play because when you think about food, it's a business. There are many sectors that are coming into play to make that to make food available to us. But in order for us to really address this issue, we have to look at it in the same way, look at the gaps, including affordability, um, to be able to to make the connections and make these long-term transformational changes that will then help us to address this in the future. Well, and I'm sure community messaging, which is your department, and keeping this in front of people as something that we need to continually be upgrading in our community is also a big part of it. It's critical that people understand the need. And as we talked about earlier in the segment, so many people in our community, probably more than we realize, are struggling. One in eight people in North Texas, 850,000 people are struggling with food insecurity. Part of what we have to do is make sure that we get that message out there, let our community know how pervasive this is and the fact that it's probably more personal than we realize. There are so many people that would never want to admit that they are going hungry, and especially when you think about the kids that are impacted. But I think part of the challenge is just making people aware of how pervasive it is and probably how more personal it is than they even realize. You know, that's nearly 10 of the Arlington Stadium. 10. That's right. No secret, the economy is struggling right now as well. Is that number going to go up? I think the short answer, we would say absolutely. Um, you know, we, we did see a rise in food assistance during COVID uh, pandemic for, you know, job losses, um, you know, businesses closed, all, all those things that we would expect. And, of course, now that we have inflation raising prices on nearly everything, including housing, gas, utilities, um, and food, we expect that number to continue to, to rise. You know, food prices have gone up estimated 10% year over year just based on inflation alone. So you can imagine that if people are already making decisions about what bills to pay and then you add housing prices, gas prices, increased food prices, um, to that there simply are not enough resources to go around for many families. So we absolutely expect that number to go up. And I think it's also important for people to have context that um, what we see nationally is that one in five people have experienced food insecurity in the last 30 days. That's 20%. 
and that includes people who have jobs. So it's not just people who don't have jobs that are impacted by food insecurity. Again, when people are making tough decisions about what bills they pay, what do they buy for their families, even working families have a difficult time in providing food and paying all the bills that they they have. We see these pictures mostly on social media, I guess, of these food banks that have these incredibly long lines. How are things in North Texas? And then if this does increase from the already astronomical number, are the local food banks and these distribution areas here in North Texas, are they ready for this additional number of people? When you look at what's happened um, during COVID, you know, we saw across the nation significant giving to food banks. Um, Everyone was acutely aware of the need. But overall, those, those number of donations have gone down. So I think when you look at it at the, the high level, what you see is inflation has driven up food costs. You see lower donations going to, let's say, food banks. So we, it, it is a situation that um, is a challenge. I think, too, um, that it's important to note that food banks alone cannot solve the challenges. So this is where I think, it, it again, it takes community partners like food banks, like the work that we're doing, like the work that faith communities are doing and others are doing um, to provide the resources that the community needs. And one other thing that's probably important to note is if a person doesn't have transportation, they may still have challenges going to these large distributions. And this is why we have to look holistically and systemically at the challenges around food insecurity to understand that transportation is a barrier to having food and certainly healthy food. So we must look at these challenges at the system level while also immediately providing resources through programs like what we have and like others have and through food banks um, that are throughout North Texas. Matt, no doubt some people might be touched by this interview and would like to get involved. How can they? Well, and I also, um, I I certainly want to answer that question, but I also want to this time also tell people in the community, if you're in need, there are resources out there. There's resources out there through local community food banks, through programs like we have, through the state assistance programs. So I, I want to make sure that listeners know if they are in need, there are resources out there. I want to really encourage them to seek that. But to business partners, to even individuals, to faith communities, I mean, the, the list goes on, is there are so many ways that our community can really rally around and help provide support for individuals in need. Obviously, there's always a need for funding. I mean, that goes probably without saying, but every food bank, every organization like ours who's doing this work in the community, we rely on on the gifts from the community and from corporate partners to help fund those programs. But also, people can donate directly to many of the pantries that are out there. I think the one thing I always want to encourage people is to make sure that they ask the food banks what they need, because that does vary from season to season. Organizations can create a pantry or adopt a pantry, even like the the ones that we have. There are always needs for volunteering as well, and that can be from sorting to delivering items, even working in community gardens, which helps to provide produce for communities. And something as simple as even being an advocate for public transit in our community can be another way that people can be involved in helping to solve the long-term challenges. You know, one of the reasons that people are food insecure is because of a lack of access to transportation. So even being an advocate for public transportation is a way to help address these needs long-term. 
We've been listening to Matt Dufresne from the Blue Zones Project talking about food insecurity across North Texas. It's a big issue. Next, are you looking for a job? Stay tuned. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, why is healthcare such a rewarding career? We decided it would be good to talk to a chief executive officer. So, Mike Sanborn, who's the president at Baylor Scott and White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth, has joined us. Mike, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. I look forward to talking to you today. You know, to help our listeners kind of get a little background here, can you talk a little bit about yourself, number one, and then number two, why did you choose a career in healthcare? That's a great question, Steve. So as you said, I'm the president at Bill Scott and White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth, and I've also worked for the Baylor Scott and White system since 2003, but have worked for other health systems in Florida and in Kansas. So I've been around a little bit as it relates to that, but have always really kind of been in and around healthcare my entire career, uh, even though I didn't do much in the way of healthcare related work prior to college. But I always enjoyed math and science in high school and uh, really kind of decided because of that, that I wanted to be a physician and a good friend of my dad's was a surgeon. And I remember one time he took me into the OR and I really enjoyed it. And I went back and shadowed him a few more times as he was doing his patient care work. And it was interesting. He told me that, you know, medical school is very expensive and I knew I would have student loans and everything. And he said that a good idea might be to become a pharmacist first because not only would I be able to work during medical school, but I could. it would also help me uh, better understand some of the pharmacology and other things I would need to know while I was in medical school. So just things kind of happened, and I ended up liking pharmacy so much that I changed my career path to pharmacy. And, you know, it was really what I loved about it was just the technical aspect and how complicated a lot of medication therapy can be. Almost every patient gets medications, at least when they're in the hospital, and, and many even well beyond that. And you can really change a patient's life with effective drug therapy. And so for me, that was really a big calling and something that guided me towards healthcare. You know, Mike, you mentioned uh, starting out as a pharmacist and you really liked it. And you kind of gave us a background of some of the different places you've lived. I got to ask you, when you first came to Baylor Scott and White, were you still a pharmacist? I actually still am, Steve. I, I've maintained my license and, you know, I don't work as a pharmacist much, but definitely throughout the pandemic have had kind of a reintroduction to a lot of the drug therapies and things that have been effective. But uh, yes, I started off as the system leader for pharmacy with Baylor Scott and White and managed the pharmacy enterprise for the system. So all of our retail and hospital pharmacy entities and really uh, at that time was one of the very first system leaders for any of our departments. And so you know, my, my first job in healthcare was at Parkland Hospital, and it was funny because my 
one day my boss quit. I'd been there about a year at Parkland and my boss left uh, to, for a bigger and better job. And I was asked to consider taking her place. And uh, that's how I ended up in management. It certainly wasn't something that I pursued or actively went about trying to get a career in healthcare administration, but that's where I've ended up. You know, it's, it's amazing how many times clinicians end up in management, just as you describe. You know, it's, it's easy to tell that you have a passion for healthcare. So I've just got to ask you this. What really makes healthcare, in your mind, a rewarding career? Boy, that's a great question. And I, I would say that, you know, first of all, there's so many great professions out there. Uh, but I would argue that there's really nothing more important than trying to help people stay healthy or restoring someone's health when they're sick. And I always feel like, you know, I've always told everybody that, you know, healthcare is the great equalizer because it really doesn't matter what your station in life is or whatever your social circumstances might be, how much money you make, how much money you don't make. When you're faced with a serious healthcare issue, that automatically becomes your primary focus and need. And so, you know, that's especially been true during the pandemic. I think that's a perfect example. And I like the fact that sometimes I'm able to serve as somewhat of a navigator. You know, if you know a hospital president, that isn't a bad thing because sometimes we can help you get care and find the care you need at the appropriate place, uh, the appropriate healthcare professional, whatever it may be. And I really enjoy that part of the job. You know, as you are addressing our listeners and they're deciding about health care, there's so many different aspects to health care. Can you recommend clinical versus non-clinical or what are your overall thoughts on that? Both clinical and non-clinical careers can obviously be very rewarding and lead to all types of different end results that are that are really fantastic. But I would argue that even in any type of job, you know, we employ all different kinds of people in healthcare. Uh, we employ lawyers and chefs and engineers and architects, and all of these people really, I think, a lot of times choose healthcare as a way for them to practice because their decisions that they make can directly or indirectly influence the care that our patients receive. And they can help make a big difference in patients' lives. If you're designing a building and trying to make it more patient and family friendly as, a, as an architect, or if you're an accountant helping people understand their healthcare bills and how they can afford different therapies and things like that, it can all be very, very rewarding. And, you know, as an example, you know, we employ across our system thousands of housekeepers. And I all the time will remind people that, you know, when you need a room cleaned or if there's a patient that is in need and needs someone to talk to, sometimes the housekeeper can be one of the most important people in the building. And, you know, obviously if you're a nurse or a physician or a therapist, you've chosen a very much more traditional clinical career. And those types of clinical jobs are very important. And I think the other thing is there's a certain amount of job security associated with them because they're always in high demand healthcare as a part of the American economy is growing quite rapidly. And it's a career that offers just a lot as it relates to general rewarding day-to-day -day care. But the same is true for those non-clinical roles. We need those people too. 
And those are a very important part of what we do. You know, Mike, to the young people, and I'll say that they're in high school, let's assume they're in high school, that are really pondering a healthcare career. Would you recommend that they volunteer in a healthcare facility and maybe do that to get a feel for the profession? I think that's a great way to get a feel for it. We work with a lot of high school students at my hospital here, uh, especially the Krista Ray organization. We've got their students here every day, but also a lot of the local colleges that employ various people. And some of them will do either just short shadowing like I did when I was younger or just uh, work here for a summer or shadow a different person for a week or two during the summertime. I think it's a great opportunity. We have for example, one of the busiest labor and delivery units in DFW here, and we have students all the time that may want to be a nurse or may want to be a physician that shadow some of the folks that are in our labor and delivery units. But, you know, we've got so many other things that we do here with complex cardiac surgery and cancer therapies and all kinds of other things that can provide exposure to students to really help them better understand, is this something that I want to do? Is this something that I could do as my life's work and find rewarding? And so, yes, I would say that that's a great way to at least get your feet wet and figure out if it might be something that you want to try. You know, you brought up a good point. I was listening to your answer on all the different people employed in the healthcare system. I think sometimes we lose sight that employers of so important to the economy and hospitals in many communities are an integral part of stimulating the economy. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I would say we typically, hospitals in any community, large or small, are typically one of the larger employers in the area. We've got about 2,500 employees just at my hospital, but you look at the other hospitals around the Fort Worth Medical District and just the employees that work there is more than 10,000. But then you add in all of the other corollary businesses that support those hospitals or practice at those hospitals. So the physician's offices, all of their employees, all of the other support services that are co-located in and around hospitals. It really has a pretty significant web of employed people that really rely very heavily. And, you know, we also support local restaurants and gas stations and just about every other kind of industry out there. Uh, A perfect example, we started a residency program a couple of years ago here. And when it's all said and done, we'll be training about 170 or so physicians here at All Saints. And we're excited about that. But what I remind people in the community is that healthcare workers generally are fairly highly paid individuals. And so especially true of these physicians that are going to be coming out of our programs, they're going to buy a house. They're going to uh, go to and contribute to the property tax revenue. They're going to help our schools. They're going to go to churches and donate there. They're going to do all kinds of things in the community that are going to have a very positive impact from an economic perspective. So I think it's almost impossible to measure the impact that a lot of times 
that hospitals and healthcare can have on a community. Boy, they sure do. Often the biggest economic driver. This is Mike Sanborn. He's the president at Baylor Scott & White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth. What a great career track. He's going to come back in the next segment to tell us more. And this entire interview is on our podcast and YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare, if you'd like to hear more. More of Mike Sanborn's story next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing this practical conversation, especially if you're looking for a job with Mike Sanborn. He's the president at Baylor Scott and White All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth about how he got in healthcare and what his career has meant to him. Steve? You know, I've heard different people say over the years, because I've been in healthcare quite a quite a long time, that it's a real calling when you enter healthcare. Do you feel that way, Mike? You know, Steve, I really do. Um, I, I think it's absolutely a calling, and I think truly the people I work with every day, they really want to be in healthcare because of the impact that they can have. And, you know, the thing that I remind people and the shadowing we talked about might help with this, but you know, it's often really challenging and stressful because there's times where people are here and it's the best day of their life. If they're delivering a baby and haven't starting a family, things like that, or maybe they've just received a new cancer diagnosis or some other kind of challenging uh, feedback on their personal health. And we help people all the time with all of those events, happy and challenging. So I think it's very important that we're here for people when they need that kind of help. And it allows us to have a meaningful improvement on the patient's life, the family member's life, helping them better understand the care that's going to be needed. And I think the other thing too, that you have to consider related to hospital work, especially is that it's a 24, seven, 365 day a year job. We don't, get to take weekends off or evenings off or anything like that, like you do in a lot of other businesses. And so that's part of that calling aspect because patients need care around the clock. Their families may have questions for us in the middle of the night and we've got to be able to answer those questions. And so that means you always have to be available and you've got to have a great team that understands the importance of being there when patients need us most, regardless of the time of day. And so it's all of those team members that really have that calling to serve patients whenever they need it. Thank you, Mike. And Thomas, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Steve. Mike, one thing I'd like to ask, you know, we hear on every business news report that we pick up, basically, we're in a recession. We're not in a recession. We're going to have a recession. We're going to dodge a recession, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a recession in healthcare right now? No, um, I wouldn't say there's a recession, but we're certainly experiencing a lot of the same challenges that individuals are experiencing out there and families are experiencing out there. The cost of the equipment and the products that we buy has certainly gone up uh, in many cases, 10, 15% per year over the last three years, each year, you know, pharmaceuticals, things like that have all increased in price. Likewise, um, you know, we're building a new building here on this campus and the construction costs have gone up pretty significantly. And so 
I wouldn't call it a recession because we're still hiring like crazy. We've really had a really aggressive effort to try to bring people on board in just about every profession that we hire for. And so that's been a big area of focus for us. So there's still plenty of jobs available in the healthcare field. And so from that respect, there's still that level of, as I mentioned earlier, that level of job security, but a lot of the financial pressures, we're, we're not immune to them. So we're certainly feeling those too. It's a good question. So you do have jobs. You are hiring. We absolutely are hiring. Um, most every position across the system, uh, you know, we employ nearly 50,000 people across Baylor, Scott, and White. And uh, depending on your area that you want to live in and depending on the type of work that you're looking for, I'd be pretty surprised if we didn't have at least an opportunity that would be worth a look. Now, you and Steve were talking about that fork in the road that anybody coming into healthcare has to cross at some point, and that is, do I go into the clinical side as a provider or a nurse or a tech or something like that, or do you go into the support side like the musician? <laughs> I love that. Um, do you offer assistance if people come on board and then they want to pursue the clinical side? Do you help them with school? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Thomas. And I think this is true of most health systems in the DFW Metroplex. Um, we do offer tuition support, and we have nurses that go on and get doctorate degrees. We have housekeepers that become uh, patient care technicians, do the training for that, and then end up becoming nurses and then moving on from that. So we absolutely not only provide that, but encourage that with our staff. And a lot of times, you know, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but a lot of times that's a great way to enter the field at a level where you may be a staff person, but coming on board with a large health system like ours provides you with obviously a steady paycheck, but then also the resources to get reimbursed for education if you want to go on and get some type of formal clinical degree, even up to including a medical degree. Really just about anything is possible as long as it relates back to your job and the work that we need done. So really important part of what we do is is help people get that advanced degree or get that additional training that they need. And I'd like to ask you even about your own position. You're president of one of our hospitals. How do people work their way up the executive ladder? Well, I get asked that occasionally by people, and uh, I think the answer is uh, a variety of things. First of all, certainly in my career, I started off as a pharmacist, but, you know, there'd be opportunities for me to do something outside of pharmacy, and I always tried to take advantage of those when I could. For example, you know, what my very first job outside of pharmacy was at a hospital in our cath lab, for a cardiac catheterization lab, director left, and they didn't have anybody to serve as an interim and they asked me, the pharmacy director, to do it. And I thought, you know what? I don't know too much about it, but I do know a little bit about leadership. So I think I'll give it a try and it'll give me an opportunity to learn something new. And I've more or less been doing that ever since. And so I think a willingness to learn new things is certainly very important. I think also really having a deep commitment to the people that you serve as a leader understanding what they need. And I think one of the biggest things that I can do as a leader is provide resources to our team so they can accomplish what they need to accomplish each and every day. And I think if you do that effectively and lead teams effectively, that is really how you 
continue, if, if that's a goal of yours, is that's how you continue with upward mobility. But it starts with doing the job that you're in very, very well, uh, branching out if you can, and then trying to look for that next opportunity that might give you a little bit more responsibility. And pretty soon, doors open and, and you have to look for the right thing. You know, you never just want to take a job just for the sake of the title. But when you have an opportunity to take a role that's rewarding and also provides you with what it is you're looking for, you, you hopefully are well prepared to take that job. Yeah, that's a great answer, Mike. And to our listeners out there, and especially the young people trying to decide a career path, do you have any closing comments on nuggets of information you would like to share? Well, I would say first, um, give it a shot and talk to some people that are in the healthcare field, like I did when I was younger, just to make sure that it's right for you. But also, you might be surprised at all the things that they tell you and the interactions that they've had as part of healthcare. And I think also, as we talked about, just about every job that I can think of that exists has a possibility to exist in healthcare as well. And so it's really a unique opportunity, I think. And so seeking out some of those people that even if you want to do something that you might not think even would be remotely related to healthcare, we're, we're hiring a full-time musician here to play music here at the hospital. So all kinds of very unique roles that if you think there might be a calling for you as it relates to potentially helping people get well, then I think talking to folks about a healthcare career can be very enlightening and ultimately very rewarding. This has been Mike Sanborn, president at Baylor Scott & White, the All Saints Medical Center in Fort Worth. Steve, he is so inspiring. Oh, he really is. And he's a board member here at the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. You know, Thomas, I'm looking at the calendar. Christmas is going to be here before you know it. It's nothing worse than being sick during Christmas. So let's keep our kids well. Let's stay well. Practice good health habits so we can enjoy those holidays. And join us next week for the Human Side of Healthcare.